Oh, let's get it. Monday, August 16th, 2021. Born the Battle, brought to you by the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, the podcast that focuses on inspiring veteran stories and puts a highlight on important resources, offices, and benefits for our veterans. I'm your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Iskra. However you listen to this podcast, be it Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, the player inside the blog, hope you're having a good week outside of podcast land. Had a short week last week during the production of this episode. Happy anniversary to my ride or die. It is my wife and I's 16th anniversary of the day that we started dating. Also the same exact day I left for Iraq, coincidentally. Uh, Going to go back and retrace some steps and, uh, and see some old friends back down in North Carolina. One new rating on Apple Podcasts and one new review that definitely boosted us in the algorithms. Uh, this one is from Izzy18711 Bravo. Says five stars. Great podcast for anyone who has served. Born the Battle is a great podcast that provides good and important insights into benefits as they roll out across the VA and great stories of veterans who take on the next mission of service following their time in uniform. With so much information available to us veterans, it's nice to have in-depth information on specific issues and great to have interviews with veterans who have excelled following their service. Uh, Definitely appreciate the review, Izzy. Yes, and I've talked about it since I've been hosting this podcast. Using the podcast to break down programs, offices, and benefits for you and others is a large focal point of Born the Battle. In addition, yes, I want to give you veteran stories that you can listen to and say, you know what, if they can do it, so can I. So I appreciate you writing in with that review. And I'm already looking forward to the next review. If you haven't yet, please consider writing one for Born the Battle on Apple Podcasts. Doing so helps us climb higher in the algorithms, giving more veterans a better opportunity to discover and listen to Born the Battle and discover the interviews, our benefits breakdown episodes, and what's in our news releases. And it is also the best way to communicate with you. Speaking of news releases, got a couple this week. First one says, for immediate release, the Department of Veterans Affairs Board of Veterans Appeals appointed 20 new veterans law judges to deliver more veterans appeal decisions, bringing the total to 113 judges. Most of the new veterans law judges will arrive prior to the end of fiscal year 2021, with additional judges to be appointed in fiscal year 2022. The judges will receive extensive training from seasoned mentor judges to prepare them for their new responsibilities and will be supported by a cadre of attorney advisors and professional staff as they adjudicate appeals. Visit bva.va.gov for additional information on the Board of Veterans Appeals. And we also have a full breakdown of the board with Born the Battle episode 180. So the next one was about a joint study with the VA that showed promising results in preventing age-related blindness. Age-related macular degeneration is the leading cause of vision loss in adults over the age of 60, which is a common condition that can blur the sharp central vision people need for activities like reading and driving. A collaborative study involving VA researchers discovered a group of HIV medications known as nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors, and I hope I said that right, may help prevent age-related macular degeneration. 
The study was led by the University of Virginia School of Medicine and included more than 15 medical centers and universities in the U.S. and abroad. Investigators looked at data of more than 33 million patients over a 20-year period and discovered patients receiving HIV medications, namely as preventative measures against HIV, were roughly 40% less likely to develop dry macular degeneration, the most common form of what is otherwise known as AMD. Though hopeful, researchers say further studies and the Food and Drug Administration approval will be needed before HIV medications identified in the study can be used to help treat age-related blindness. Routine eye exams and preventative vision testing are covered under VA healthcare benefits. To learn more about VA's blind rehabilitation services, visit rehab.va.gov forward slash prosthetics forward slash blind rehab forward slash index dot ASP. All right, this week's guest is a Marine veteran who served with two Medal of Honor recipients, as well as he puts it, a company of heroes at the Battle of Waste City during the Vietnam War. After he got out in the 70s, he helped children get released from state mental institutions. Then he became an FBI agent who went deep undercover for the FBI and the Italian mobs from the 70s to the 90s. He's also a professor and an author. He is Marine veteran, John Legato. Enjoy. You know, I'm really, you know, I'm going to hit record because you never know what you're going to get when you're setting up. Uh, you know, you, you, sometimes the best stuff is, is when you initially are, are setting up. But, um, you know, I'm glad that we finally got a chance to sit down and talk. Um, our first conversation was, what, about two years ago? Yeah, maybe more. Uh, back then I was, I just started the podcast and, uh, uh, Marine Corps, Marine veteran, uh, Rick Robinson, who was, who was one of my mentors. He, he, he said, I'll put you in touch with Sergeant Major Canley. Uh, when I first started the podcast, he's like, but, but first you need to talk to, to John Legato first. Yeah. You know, you're not going to believe it, but, uh, Sergeant Major Canley's coming here and spending two weeks with me tomorrow. Oh, really? What are yeah. you guys doing? Well, uh, he asked me to write his biography. You know, I wrote the book, The Gunny, which was a, a snapshot in Vietnam at way, but I'm doing his whole biography now. You know, I was, uh, I didn't know that you were an author. Uh, it's funny because I was in Quantico's PX about a week ago and I knew this interview was coming up and I knew a little bit about you, but I didn't know that you were, you wrote his, you know, books on Sergeant Major Canley. Until I was in the PX and I saw it like right there in front of me. They had it on display and everything. So that was kind of cool. Um, and also in reading in your bio, I didn't know that you were a, a professor now with Campbell University at, on Camp Lejeune. I took some basics at Campbell on Lejeune uh, on my journey to my bachelor's back in back in the day. Oh, it's a wonderful. I'll tell you, I taught in a community college in Cleveland for nine years. And uh, I come up here. You know, in Cleveland's an inner city, you know, in a community college, you, you get people that could be in Harvard and people that shouldn't be in college at all. You know, you got, <laughs> I, had, I had one kid arrested, the cops came in. And, yeah. Oh my but, gosh. But anyway, so I, I come up here and I walk in the class and as you know, the class is all Marines, either active duty, retired or whatever. And they, everybody stood up and I, I looked around and, I, you know, and I think, what, uh, who came in? <laughs> but the, the difference was night and day, you know, the papers that their, their briefings, I would have them give briefings and it were like professional briefings. 
Wow. Wow. Yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, it's a different, it's a different breed of, uh, of student on base than I guess you would at a local community college in Cleveland. Absolutely. Uh, John, the first question we always ask on Born the Battle is, is when and where did you know that military service was going to be the next step in your life? And I say that in that way, because I think, especially in your generation, it wasn't always a choice, right? So um, were you drafted or, or was it a choice? No, no. It, in 1965, I was the first person in my large Italian family to get accepted to college. Oh, wow. In 1966, I was the first person in my large Italian family to get expelled from college. So <laughs> back then, and I know you're too young, but there, 66, 67, especially in 68, you had two deferments to avoid uh, military. You had student and you had a medical. Mm. Unfortunately, I was in great shape. And as soon as you get expelled, they write a letter to your draft board to college saying you're eligible. So Very well. So it was 30 days back then, 30 or 40 days they needed bodies in 67. Uh, you were getting a draft notice. And so my, my father said, you know, he was in World War II. He said, you know, don't, uh, don't be a grunt, don't be an infantry. So I went to the Navy. They had a year waiting list. I went to the Air Force. They had a year and a half. So I get drunk with, with my buddy and I say, I don't want to go in the Army. So uh, <laughs> I joined the Marines so drunk. Um, and, and I remember telling the recruiter, I don't want to go to Vietnam. I don't want to be like in the, in the dirt. I don't want to be infantry. And back then, recruiters could say, which he said to me, he says, you're not going to Vietnam. You're not going to be in the infantry. I'm going to try to get you on embassy duty, you know, to London or somewhere. So I signed the papers, and about four and a half months later, I was a basic rifleman in Quang Tri, Vietnam. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Best thing that ever happened to me, really. Best thing. And in hindsight, it was. So I thanked that recruiter. Sure. No, absolutely. Uh, it's it's funny how you said said that uh, things that they can they did back then they don't they don't do they can't. Oh do my it god! Anymore. I mean, there are guys still waiting for their gynecology MOSs, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, now I, I usually ask who your who was your best friend or or your greatest mentors were while you were in, but I think for you, that's almost a foregone conclusion, right? Uh, with with those that you served with in way, um, Gunner Sergeant Canley, your platoon sergeant uh, Al Gonzalez, both awarded the Medal of Honor. I'm sure many others. Well, Ray Smith, and I'm sure, and I'm, and I'm sure many others. Yeah, I mean, Atul Smith, Ray Smith was a, a brand new second lieutenant. Um, the, see, whenever I hear people complain about second lieutenants, and, and especially in Vietnam, they'll say they were with I had the best leadership in Alpha Company. Um, I, I, you know, I didn't know it at the time because I had no comparative, you know, I had no way of comparing leaders. Yeah. But I, my platoon sergeant uh, was an E5, you know, Al Gonzalez. The company gunny was John Canley. Uh, the company commander was Gordon Batchelor, a Navy Cross winner. Wow. And the three lieutenants were Ray Smith, uh, Rick Donnelly, and Al Courtney. All Navy Cross uh, or Silver Star Navy Cross winners um, and, and superb leaders. Wow. So when you look at leadership, I didn't know it at the time. I, we had two Medal of Honors in the first couple hours of the battle. We had no commissioned officers for three days, and you had this E7. Oh, I had no idea that E7s are not normally company commanders. You know, that's a captain's billet. 
And and his XO by default was an E5. And uh, for four days, uh, most of us were POCs, Lance Corporals. That was it. So we followed this gunny and his sergeant. Um, and, and, you know, the first four or five days at Way City were epic, historical in nature. Yeah. You know, I, I've seen some interviews where you talked about Sergeant Major Canley, uh, back then Gunner Sergeant Canley. And the, and the way you talked about the way you talked about him was was like how other uh, so how some other legit heroes were portrayed, portrayed in film. Uh, I'm thinking of like Sergeant Major Plumley, and we were soldiers or Lieutenant Colonel McKnight uh, in Black Hawk Down who, you know, in, in the films, they just stood up when bullets were flying and everyone else was, was hunkered down. Uh, and, and these two, you know, the, these gentlemen like these never, never ducked or never, never uh, got to the ground. And then yet they were never shot. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not just me saying when I interviewed some of the guys I served with, you had 20, 30 guys not saying uh, the same thing from one incident. In other words, they weren't all commenting on what they were commenting on 30 different incidents where Gunny Canley would just stand there and calm. uh, First of all, for a NCO, he never raised his voice. He never cursed. Here you got a hardened combat guy. And, uh, when he got mad, he would talk lower, which really scared us, you know. <laughs> He's one of those guys. Gotcha. <laughs> oh, but, but what a leader. He loved his junior enlisted Marines. He he wasn't too kicked in the butt with officers. He tolerated officers, but he loved his uh, junior enlisted Marines. Uh, now, Canley's still around today, uh, and he recently received his Medal of Honor, uh, you know. Uh, but to keep all this in perspective, as we get older, you know, Sergeant Gonzalez, uh, you know, when we use the word mentor, you know, back then he was 21. Yeah. Was there anything that, uh, that you learned from a mentor that was like Sergeant Gonzalez at, at that point in time? He was a quiet, uh, relatively quiet. The gunning was really quiet, but, but Sergeant Gonzalez uh, sort of radiated confidence and leadership. And if you, I was with him, both of them, when they got their medal of honor, uh, What was funny, I'll tell you a funny story about that, is that uh, Ray Smith came up on the fourth day and as a second lieutenant with only two months in country, got command of Alpha Company. And they said, go meet Gunny Canley because Gunny was the acting company commander. Mm. So Ray meets um, Canley and says, listen, I want you to take third platoon. That was Gonzalez's platoon. And and Canley says... uh, He says, Gonzalez got third platoon. So Ray Smith repeated it. No, you know, he's kind of quiet. And he goes, I don't know him. Well, you take it. And and the gunny said, Gonzalez got third platoon, Lieutenant. And it dawned on Ray that Gonzalez has third platoon. And and Canley finally said, if you want me to go up to third platoon and and watch uh, Gonzalez, I'll go do it, but he's got third platoon. And if I shouldn't be anywhere, Lieutenant, I might want to be with you. <laughs> In other words, to keep an eye on it. And so Ray Smith has this, who General, Major General Ray Smith has this great story where he says, my first act as a company commander was to try to relieve a Medal of Honor winner. <laughs> <laughs> outstanding. That's outstanding. Um, so, you know, I, there's a lot of media out there on Sergeant Major Canley and his Medal of Honor citation, uh, but but there's not much media that give the the full operational overlay uh, of what you 
experience and what you witnessed uh, that took place between January 31st and that first week in, in February in 1968. Do you mind giving, I guess, not even a 10,000 foot view, but maybe an operational view of what was taking place and what you witnessed at that time in history? Yeah. Um, in 67, I don't know if Kantian was a fire base up by the DMZ. I mean, you could, you could, you know, spit and hit the DMZ. Mm. And we took a lot of casualties. It was a horrible place. We were surrounded by, you know, two battalions of NVA. We were one battalion and uh, we had three to 400 rounds of mortars and rockets and artillery every day. So we got out of there. I mean, we, we took, much casualties and we went to Quang Tree and spent Christmas and New Year's and Quang Tree was no picnic. I mean, it was up North and we got in firefights, but it was nothing compared to Kantian. So because we had got all shot up in, in Kantian, they sent us to Fubai, which was a large air force base. And we had not, we were living underground in, in Kantian and we had dysentery. We had leeches. We had, I mean, we were, uh, we lost weight. You, I mean, you can't imagine um, the conditions in, in Vietnam were similar to World War II uh, in, in Korea. Like Guadalcanal type, yeah, type, we, type of. We didn't get mail. And we, you know, if we went out on a night ambush in a, in a rice paddy, we, we didn't come back in. Um, you know, we, th- those were the conditions. So yeah. I said, are you guys go up to uh, Fubai and we're going to give you a uh, good duty guarding uh I forget what it was, but something at Way City, the canal or some good duty, because Way City was a, a French city. It looked like New Orleans. I, I'd never seen anything wow. like that. So wow. the problem was that they could only airlift half of the company from Quang Tree to Fubai. And I was one of the lucky ones or unlucky ones to get airlifted. And the gunny was there and we had one officer, which is Captain Batchelor, the company commander. So we're up there and we get mortared and rocketed uh, about midnight, which was nothing, uh, you know, back because we were used to that from Kantian. So we, it was 31 January, 1968. We didn't know it was, that was the Tet, uh, New Year, the, the Vietnamese New Year is called Tet. And what we didn't know is a nationwide effort to end the war by the North Vietnamese. Yeah. So what happens is our intelligence was bad. Um, Task Force X-Ray, which was the 1st Marine Regiment Task Force at Fubai, uh, wakes us up and says, you're going to go into Way City. The Captain Bachelor told us there's two undersized NVA battalions there wreaking havoc at the Citadel and the MACV compound. And you should be back by noon. <laughs> so That's how it was briefed, huh? Well, you know what? It was briefed that way for five days. I mean, but, but answer your question or, or, or when the intel is bad, but so we, we go and, and we have one officer, the gunny and, and Al Gonzalez, and we go up and on the road to way was highway one. And we get near the city and we get attacked snipers and all that machine guns. You know, wasn't that bad. So we, we get our wounded, put them on, uh, we, we met tanks, five tanks. And we were in trucks. So we took the wounded, started on north on Highway 1. And we go about a mile. And we get hit hard from the left flank. Uh, machine guns, rockets, more. The tanks, two two or three tanks were taken out. I mean, I, I grabbed our radio man, Corporal Williams, and he got hit in the tank in front of us and, and dragged him into a courtyard. I looked down. He had no legs. 
I mean, it was that that bad. Um, so anyway, we we Captain Bachelor gets hit. He runs out on the road to save a Marine. He throws his body over the Marine, and he gets hit with four AK rounds. Chunk of his uh, left forearm was off, and a bullet severed his femur. And wow. uh, by that time, the corpsman had no, we had, I think, two corpsmen killed or one corpsman killed. So the corpsman, Doc Kerr, who's phenomenal, gets an entrenching tool and makes a splint and uh, and save uh, Batsford's leg. But he's out. He's gone. And uh, so we move forward. The gunny takes command. He was the next commanding, you know, highest rank. And we get near way, and then all of a sudden we get hit from the front with NBA machine guns. We get hit from the left flank with NBA machine guns, mortars, rockets, and to our right. Go ahead, you're going to ask. Yeah, was this your was this your just the company? Was it like what was the strength? What was your strength, and what was the strength of the enemy? That's a good question. I had always thought we had about a hundred, but I, I learned recently there was only about seventy or eighty of us. Because companies in Vietnam were undermanned. Anyway, you might, I don't know, companies full strength might be 300. We had, we're lucky if we had 200, uh, 210, you know. We were about 70 or 80 Marines. Wow. Going into the city, the enemy strength was two battalions, two battalions. When we got into a city, and this is all documented, I know it's going to sound like a, an unreasonable number. There were 10,000 NBA troops in and around Way City, just Way City. They had captured the city the, that night, early in, in 3 a.m. So the two battalions, uh, Bachelor's hit, he's thrown on a truck. We got dead and wounded mounting. The uh, tanks are getting hit, but we have to move forward because uh, the NBA cut off portions of Highway 1 back to Fubai. On our right flank was an open rice paddy. Now, if you can visualize, we're getting hit from the left, from the uh, from the uh, the west flank. The east was an open rice paddy. Machine guns now. No to run. No, we were coming from the north, and we couldn't go south. Wow. So, so we were in this muddy ditch, which was filled with buffalo dung and just mud because it was in monsoons. And uh, Marines are getting picked off. So Canley and Gonzalez, they, they direct some of us to fire at the northern positions. They jump into the rice paddies, the two of them. They had some law rockets, hand grenades, and they they made their way. I don't know if you've seen rice paddies, but they're just mud sort of lumps filled with water on either side. Yeah. And they made their way within 20 to 30 yards of the machine gun positions north, firing law rockets. They eventually threw hand grenades and eliminated the two or three machine gun positions. I mean, a frontal assault on two machine guns. This allowed us to get into the city uh, proper. And uh, by then, half the company was dead or wounded. So when you say we had 70 or 80, 40, 40 were dead or wounded. Wow. Yeah. The Undersized fire, company to begin with. That's <laughs> incredible. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it really was. I mean, you don't have time now. You know, historically, I know these numbers. Back then, it was just chaos. I mean, yeah. um, you, you know, all you heard was... Uh, the smells and sounds of war are amazing. Uh, we have no air protection and uh, the smells of Vietnam. And then I learned one thing that uh, blood smells like copper. And, and it was this continuous loop of corman up, corman up. Unfortunately, it was only 
there was one corpsman at that point. So guys were, you know, doing the best we could. But we get into the city and um, it was a, a lull in the fighting. So I'm thinking in my little teenage brain, hey, we made it. This is it. This is I'm alive, you know, and, and my brothers are the one that's they're going to get to MACV or compound and be saved. And so we get into MACV compound and um, it was Australians, Army and a couple of Marines. And they had been under siege. They had three breaches of their wall the night before. Wow. And uh, it was a, it was an amazing. They survived. But but they did. We we got in there and. Uh, we tried to take care of the wounded. You know, there were no, no medevac choppers. That was the other thing. For five days of the battle, uh, they would not give us air or artillery support because they said Way was a historic city. And I mean, they didn't want to ruin it. I mean, it had cathedrals and stadiums and soccer. You know, it was, it was literally a French, beautiful city. Yeah. So they wouldn't allow us to destroy it. So we were fighting 10,000 NVA. Uh, man on me, you know, with no, and they were, they had uh, captured the city the night before. They had been there weeks before the, the New Year celebration, infiltrating the city. So you're, you know, you think about, you think about other battles like Ia Drang and, and, and some other ones where the air support was critical. Yes. And then there's, there's way where there's literally none. no air support. No, no, not, not literally none. Incre- no, yeah, yeah, none. none. Yeah. Um, so for, yeah, for four or five days, six days, I don't know how it was. I think it might've been 10. It's in a documentary, but uh, absolutely for the first week or so we had nothing. So, you know, we get into, into the MACV compound and and, uh, those people, we found them hiding under racks. They thought, you know, they, they thought that we were there to say, which we were supposed to be to save them. And I'm looking at them and they're going to save us. And, and we didn't realize that we were the reinforcements they expected, you know, a couple of battalions of Marines as these 40 guys limping and carrying their dead and wounded. And, and they're looking at us and we're looking at them both like, okay, we're okay. Now we got, um, wow, this so, is it. <laughs> yeah. I, wow. So we did, we, we hadn't eaten in anything. We remember we stole bologna sandwiches and then we, we asked for more food and they wouldn't give it the army colonel or something. So we, we broke into their food supply and we, we broke into their army. We took ammunition, the corpsman broke in and got medical supplies because they didn't have any. Um, wow. Anyway, we're, we're there and um, we get word that Gulf Company 2-5 is coming behind us to support us. So they, they arrived about an hour later. And had some problems, but not as much problems as we did getting into the city. So, uh, Task Force X-ray and their wisdom continues to say there's only two undersized NVA companies at way. We want you to cross the bridge, um, which separates North and South Vietnam, and go help this uh, Arvin General Truong who was the, the most famous general, uh, South Vietnamese general in Vietnam. And he is surrounded at the Citadel, which was a big fortress. So the Alpha Company, you're going to be on the river and you're going to support Golf Company. They're going to cross and we're going to fire across the river, which was, was stupid anyway. The, the effective range of an M16 in, in 2000 or in, uh, 1968 was 300 yards. The river was like 300 40 yards. So we, we, wow. we, 
Yeah, so we're hitting the mud, we're hitting the water. But anyway, we get to the river, and I look across the river, and the first thing I see is a large NVA flag flying atop the citadel. <laughs> they had captured the citadel. And then the I trunk, see... But the trunk at this point is out of the fight. Yeah. Oh, it's... Wow. It, 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 they captured the city. They owned every inch of the city except where we were, but they were all around us. And I look and I see hundreds, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of NVA. And I remember thinking, well, we don't see NVA soldiers in Vietnam very rarely, especially just standing out there. And they were. They were there were two battalions of NVA on the other side of the river. Is there a point in the battle where you thought I'm not getting out of this alive. What do you mean? If, was there a point? <laughs> yeah. Like, well, well, I mean, I'm sure you thought about it many times. I'm sure it came up, but what was the, uh, what point was the first point? Like the same, the same. Oh, of course going in, it was a horrible day. Uh, I mean, there were so many, I mean, I, there was some funny stuff that, and um, on the first night we occupied homes, French homes. And I had gone to Vietnamese language school for 30 days. I mean, I knew, how to phrases like talk, give me a cigarette. <laughs> you better, <laughs> you better talk. I don't know rather, but not much. Yeah. yeah. And, and so it's, it's, it's still quiet, which was and it's pitch dark and that little ambient moon. And we are in French homes and other French homes are across the street, maybe 30 or 40 yards. And it, sometime in the middle of the night, I hear, Whoops and woo, you die, Marine, F you, Marine. And it took a while. I thought, well, the guys are not going to screw around like this. The NVA were across the street, <laughs> across the street, and whooping it up. And, I'm, and I did think uh, this is like a World War II movie, you know, where you, you know, they're on an island, it's the middle of the night, and you hear, hello, Joe. <laughs> wow. So, anyways, um, Sergeant Gonzalez. We, we wanted to open up. He said, no, they would have opened up by now. Let's let's wait. But they were screaming all night. And, and you know, our attention <laughs> raised our, our uh, pucker factory. Sure. So Gonzalez tells me, he said, the guy, you went to the language school. Say something back to them that will, you know, cut the rhetoric down. And I didn't know. You know, I can't say, hey, uh, Twang, you got a cigarette. And I couldn't think of anything to say. And everybody's waiting for me to stop this. So I jumped into the doorway and screamed, F you, you effing, you know. And, and all the guys started laughing. And that punctured the, the tension a little bit. And, and even the Vietnamese, I'm probably thinking, you know, what, what was that, trying? <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, you called three of those days of the battle. And, and I'm sorry if I cut you off, uh, part, you know, partway through the, your, the whole battle, the whole operational part of the battle, but you call three of those days, the three missing days of Marine Corps history due to the nature of the battle. Why, why did you frame it in that way? Well, we had going in, we had Gonzalez, we had all enlisted men and, and I, sh you know, I don't know what the Marine Corps is like nowadays, but in the sixties, I mean, I was in, kicked out of college, joined the Marines, had no idea what medals were. I mean, I'd seen them, you know, in movies and stuff, but none of us were interested or, or interested is the wrong word. Maybe we're aware of medals, that we, we could win medals. So if you take that out of the equation, 
We had no officers and we had heroic acts being committed all around us. And the problem was um, Gunny Canley wrote up Gonzalez for his Medal of Honor, but Gonzalez died on uh, 4 February. So now you have an E7 and a bunch of 18-year-old PFCs and Lance Corporals, most of whom were either medevaced, killed, uh, rotated, had their third Purple Heart, were hardly decimated. But by the time uh, we left the city 31 days later, only seven Marines who entered that city left unbloodied. So we're scattered to the winds. You know, we're scattered to the wind. I got wounded. Wow. I, I got wounded on the 21st, got medevac. And out of a company of Marines, seven ended up without a Purple Heart. Oh, yeah, only seven. I mean, there could have been thousands. Guys were getting wounded all the time and wouldn't. Wow. Uh, I can remember I got hit with a piece of shrapnel on the chest and my buddy Carangio got his K-bar and flicked it out. And that was it. I mean, you know, but not just me. Guys were, were walking around with bullet wounds that they never, you know, that and re- refused to um, either get medevac or couldn't get medevac. So it was a, all of us had bandages. We looked, you know, greasy, bloody bandages, all of us. The, the wounded were who couldn't fight were loading magazines and handing it to the guys that could. It was, it was amazing. Uh, so why I called it that is that uh, there was no social media, you know, in 1968, 69. Yeah. We just left. We had no way of contacting each other. And so years later, when we gathered, we all started talking about the gunny, the gunny, the gunny did this, did that. And I realized that those four or five days without officers were not documented. Nothing. I mean, nothing other than, Hey, Gunny was a brave dude, you know, but uh, so I started taking statements and it hit me that we had three missing days where this guy, a medal of honor, and also the other guys, if you read the book, The Gunny, um, did you read it? I didn't. I haven't read it yet. No, yeah. absolutely. No, uh, I'd I, love to. Yeah, I, I interviewed these guys that I, I love and were with. And, but you only see war through your eyes. And I realized these guys were heroes. I mean, my, my friends, little Larry Lewis looked 12. I looked 13. He looked 12. The helmet didn't even fit. And, uh, you know, Larry's charging uh, uh, uh Fortified NVA house. He jumps through the window. He engages. I never knew this. Nobody, nobody wrote it out. And uh, there's story after story about that. And uh, so none of this was documented. So I started documenting. And, and the gunny was the first uh, person, individual that had the greatest. Uh, I don't want to say. Um, the, I don't want to use the word uh, unfairness. It wasn't unfair that he didn't get a medal. It was just not documented. Circumstances of Circumstances. the battle. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it took me 13 years uh, to get him the medal. 13 years of bureaucratic BS. Sure. Let me give you one example, one quick example. It gets rejected one time because I had to get uh, in an endorsement of every officer in the chain of command. It was 13. So I go to work identify them all from the commandant on down to a platoon commander. Eleven were dead. Two were alive was Ray Smith and Gordon Batcher. They endorse it. I get a call from the Navy Department and said, sir, I'm ensign so-and-so. He says, uh, 
I have the packet. My job only is to see if it's complete. I have a checklist and I'm checking off and there are 11 missing signatures. And I said, no, no, the packet, that form was complete. And he said, no, sir. He said, my checklist says you have to have the signature for every officer in the chain of command. You have 11 missing. And finally, this went around. I said, you realize they're dead. And this ensign said, yes, sir. But there's still 11 missing signatures. And my checklist says. <laughs> so So people say, why did it take 13 years? Uh, it's the, the banging of the head of. Of yeah, of you know, of <laughs> of stuff like that, um, incredible. So, you were, I guess, the impetus, the documentarian for that medal. Um, what was it? I mean, we did. There was a movie, uh, Last Full Measure, that came out recently, and they and they kind of that movie kind of documented what you're talking about going around, getting all the first person accounts and, and, and things like that, that had to have been a journey in and of itself. You know, I was met with uncaring bureaucrats, incompetent bureaucrats, um, people that, first of all, uh, I had to go through a congressperson and I started with, uh, Gunny Canley's, uh, district, uh, it was terrible. One congresswoman lost all the original paperwork, which sent me back two years because I had to go get them all again. And, you know, we're of an age, we're in our 70s now. And yeah. a couple guys just wrote it longhand. And, and to duplicate it took a year and a half. Um, when I got down to it, the end, the, the Congress, I, I tried to talk to the congresswoman and I couldn't talk to her. I got low level people. I said, can I talk to the chief of staff? Because what happened, it was sat on the desk. They sent it to the wrong place. They sent it to the Department of Defense where it sat for almost two years. And during those two years, I would call and say, what, what's going on? We don't want to anger the congressional liaison. It'll come, you know, it takes time. Finally, when I demanded, they said, oh, it's been in on the wrong desk. It's just sitting, you know. Meanwhile, well, Gunny Canley is getting old. He's 83 now. Is he really? Yeah. He doesn't look it. Doesn't look at it at all. No. What, 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 what kept you going? What kept your team going um, through 13 years? I was angry. I got angry. And uh, several times I gave up. And I never had the heart to tell them that it was done. I mean, lost paperwork. And I couldn't talk to anybody. At one point, I wanted to march on Congress with all the Vietnam vets. And somebody talked me down from the ledge. But... Um, I was just so angry because, you know, I was in government 37 years. I'm a retired FBI agent. Yeah. Uh, I used to meet with assistant directors, directors, uh, you know, anyway. And I'm what, thinking, does that, what does that medal mean now that it's in Canada's hand? What's it mean for you, for the men that, that were there at Way and saw everything that he did? It's, it's funny. He talks about it. Uh, that the Marine, the medals are for his junior enlisted Marines. And that, uh, and, and you, what I've seen through the ceremony, and even now when I see these guys or when they, they're going to commission a ship for the gunny, I don't know if you know that. No, I didn't know uh, that. No. Yeah, they're commissioning some. We'll go all there during the commissioning. But to see these guys be recognized, because the gunny always recognizes them. And like when we were with President Trump, he met just with us and the, the remaining guys from Alpha Company. And to see them, 
was, was to me, it was worth it. It was because of what they did. I'm telling you, these guys are all heroes. They, I mean, I could tell you story after story. And the gunny recognized in, that in war, you are totally dependent on the, those 18, 19 year old. You are totally dependent on them. Um, and if you think you're not, you won't last long in combat. You know, you, you, and so the, the social distance between enlisted and officers in Vietnam or enlisted and seniors is, is minimal. I mean, don't get me wrong. We, we obeyed commands and, but there was more love. There was more give and take. You can, there was a, there was yeah. a camaraderie there. Yeah. Um, now you were medically discharged from, from, was it from, from Vietnam? Uh, was it from that particular battle? Was it from way? Yeah, I was from the, yeah, I went to the Philippines and then when I got, um, you know, out of the hospital and out of medical care, uh, I volunteered to go back. You had to sign a waiver if you had three purple hearts. And they said no, because I had less than a year to go. My MOS was basic rifleman and I couldn't even go back for a tour, a full tour. So, uh, they discharged me a year early and uh, I went back to, went back to college. Uh, so you, you got, so you got hit away. You, you weren't one of the seven that made it out unbloodied. No, no, no I, I don't even think one of the seven made it out. Unbloodied. <laughs> what happened at, at way is that, um, guys were getting wounded and just not reporting it. They would tell them to go back to the back V and they were so afraid they were going to get medevac that they didn't, they would go around the corner, smoke a cigarette have somebody bandage them up and go back in. I mean, that was way city. It was tremendous. They didn't want to leave. No one wanted to leave. Yeah. Well, we all wanted to leave, but no one wanted to leave anyone behind, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Now, now we hear a lot about Vietnam veterans and, and how they came home. Uh, you know, most recent interviews that I, that I did uh, that where we spoke on this were, were Diane Carlson Evans. Uh, she was a Vietnam nurse uh, and Major, Major General Award who is the director of the Vietnam commemoration, uh, which both are episodes are in our archives here at born the battle. What was your experience in, in coming home and taking off the uniform? I don't care your rank. If you saw a lot of combat in any combat, Vietnam, world war two, after whatever, if you saw a ton of combat, you were screwed up your first year. So I came back and I went to college and you can imagine the college scene back. And I got 1969. I, so I went to college. I remember registering and, um, and I went there and I couldn't find housing. I didn't get it before I went. So I pitched a tent out in the woods and I lived in this tent for the summer. And it was a tent I could stand up in and it had a floor. I bought it. And wow. I'm like in the Hilton. I mean, I have lanterns. Yeah, fancy <laughs> compared, to, compared to Contien. Yeah. yeah. So, so people were saying there's this strange Vietnam guy that, you know, living out. But, um, you, you know. John was Rambo. John was John Rambo before Rambo. <laughs> well, but Rambo knew he was Rambo. I just thought I was back as a sophomore. <laughs> I didn't think it was anything strange. Sure. Um, no. Yeah. I mean, this is what I, you know, this was good. I remember the first time I realized that some girl. Woodstock was going on and everything, you know, it's, it's not, yeah. you know, it's not, not too far off the norm. Well, evidently it was because this girl wanted to study for a history test. And she said, you can't come to the girl's dorm. Where do you live? And I gave her directions to this tent out about five miles near a creek. And she said, I'm not going out there. <laughs> 
Wow. Wow. So, but, but in answer to your question, we're screwed up and, and it got into, most guys get into a lot of fights. They drink more than they should. And because there was no support system, we, you know, now uh, they have all this transition periods. It was like, Hey, uh, walk it off. You know, here's a band aid. There was no transition and, but you didn't have a support system. So you couldn't call up a buddy. We didn't even have fun. We didn't, I didn't even know the names of, uh, some of my best friends in Vietnam, they had nicknames or, you, you know, a, you know, uh, Punji. And then when you're in the military, you never really know the first name. It's always yeah. the last name, you know? Yeah. And it was difficult, you know, to uh, keep information. Like if you wrote something down, I mean, you know, you're in the mud, uh, you know, at least you would get it. In. <laughs> but anyway, um, so we didn't have a sports system. We came back, I went to college uh, and I didn't, you know, I didn't talk. I, I drank and fought, but I didn't say anything for about a year. <laughs> Incredible. Incredible. Yeah. I mean, today with so many, there's so many support systems. The VA has gotten a lot better. I'm sure from the seventies, the, the support systems of all the VSOs and nonprofits nowadays compared to then it's just, it's just night and day. You know, well, I, they blame that they couldn't separate the war from the warrior. They blame, I remember in sociology yeah. class, uh, I didn't think anybody knew I was a vet, although I came back to school on crunches and, and I think I said skiing accident. I don't know what I said, but, um, and I remember them talking about Vietnam. I, I would get so angry. There was this guy, Pat Gallagher, if you're listening, you idiot, uh, that he would, uh, he would keep mentioning the Vietnam war and, and he was an expert in it. He read it, but he, of course he wasn't there. He was and it was so wrong, and then, but I never said anything, but I held it in so much that one night I saw him on campus and I just went up and attacked him. <laughs> so don't you wow. ever say, so don't you ever say another word about the I know I sound pretty bad, but I'm no no I mean it's it was something that you know, hey, you were there, and you he was not and and i and i I can totally understand that and you know, probably could have could have been a, a different way, but again, no support system. <laughs> you know, no support system. You're young and and it might have been yeah. a different way. Yeah, you know. Wait a minute, that know. discussion. <laughs> <laughs> so we would have had a, a deep, meaningful discussion. <laughs> on the, are you kidding me? It wouldn't have worked. No, it wouldn't have worked. It's just, uh, you know, and you're younger, and it's just. Uh, I, I understand. I can understand that uh, totally. I, I probably, you know, it's probably, it's completely plausible to react that way. Absolutely. It's, you know, I, I know that welcome home and thank you for your service didn't come for many years for your generation. Oh, no. yeah, and I also know that much of your generation leaned in to ensure that my generation wasn't treated the same way. So if there's any solace in it, the cross that your generation bore that allowed my generation to come home the way we did. Uh, I just want to say thank you for that and that it, it is recognized. Well, thank your generation because we never heard thank you for your service until your generation. And, you know, it, it seems trite and some people don't like it, but it's, it's, it's at least some recognition, you know, yeah. of our generation. No. no, I mean, I can only imagine where, you know, and especially where, you know, the, the commemoration has a great commercial where it's a Vietnam veteran at a counter. He's not getting that free cup of coffee. He's not get, getting recognized at all, at all. 
you know, and then there's a, a gentleman that's my generation comes in. He's got, he's got his army fatigues on. And, and of course, as, as Marines, we're like, okay, army's in a cafe with fatigues on, with, you know, with camis on, what's, what are you doing? But anyways, I digress. Um, but you know, he immediately gets a kid wants to take a photo with him. Uh, you know, he, he gets that free cup of coffee. Everyone's thanking him. And, and the Vietnam veteran is just, you know, he's looking at his old tattoo, you know, of his mm-hmm. unit and, and, and I love the fact that in that commercial, the, the, you know, the younger guy is telling the kid, Hey, that's a hero too. Yeah. And that, and that's exactly the way you guys should be seen and treated. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Um, you know, yeah. as back then you couldn't separate the public society, couldn't separate the war from the warrior. That that's yeah. the main issue. No. Well, the, the best way I think to, to, to start doing that again is, is to really, reach out to your generation again. And, and, the, and the commemoration does a really good job of that. And, and they're, you know, they've, they've gotten, I think to 3 million Vietnam veterans, there's 3 million more to go and we're losing over 500 a day. Um, it's something that um, definitely uh, if you have one in your family or, you know, it's something that should be recognized hundred percent. Yeah. Our reunions are getting uh, <clears throat> attended. Uh, yeah. It's sad. And we, we you know, we, I, I know of two of our, guys from alpha company that are in hospice now yeah you know you hear it all the time not all the time but it seems like all the time that uh, and we're in the bullpen you know the world war ii guys are pitching the last innings and we're warming up in the bullpen but we're happy you know the ones that survive are happy to be here and see the the change the patriotism in the country it's good it's good well it's all you know again there's this whole sense across that you guys board and we appreciate it now there, it seems like you took a, a, some time away from federal service for about a 10 year stretch. Was there, was there a level of decompression there in that? You know, there was, but probably not intended. I, I worked 10 years with severely handicapped children and adults back then. Um, I, in fact, I worked for the association for retarded citizens, ARC, you know, um, and, I got tremendous worth when people ask me between being a professor, uh, a Marine, an FBI agent, the most rewarding time, I always say that time, because we took people out of large institutions that you wouldn't believe existed in the 60s and 70s. And the one flew over the cuckoo's nest type of institutions. Apt, I mean, there was a place in Pennsylvania called Polk State School and Hospital. It looked like a castle up on a hill. And I, I remember walking into a room once with the superintendent and it was dark and uh, they had these people on fruit carts lying down on fruit carts with blankets and uh, they got to know uh, a lot of them didn't need to be there they were pretty high functioning and so we for 10 years what i did my only job was to get people that didn't belong there into the community and to this day i keep in touch with some of them that are you know, have jobs and, and living semi-independently. I mean, it's just an amazing story. Incredible. No, I, I think that's part of your story that hasn't been told much. Jeez. It's so some are still around today. Yeah. I, I, a funny story. I went back for a, a college reunion and I had a name tag on and a woman across elderly woman says, oh, Legato, did you work with the uh, ARC? And I said, yes, ma'am. And she said, my son, Mark Fox still talks about you. And uh, I took Mark was in a state center from back then. If you had a handicapped kid, you would go right from the birth hospital to an institution. I don't know why, but a lot of 
Uh, they didn't even go home, you know. And so Mark had been at, at Crescent State School and Hospital for 21 years, and I got him out, and he just thrived. I mean, he – anyway, that that was very rewarding for me. Sure, sure. Um, how did you make your way to the FBI? Well, you know, my father was a cop, uh, and I always wanted to be in – the easiest transmission transition, anybody that's listening to this, if you have been in the military, the easiest transition is law enforcement because sure. it's the chain of command and everything. So I, I wanted to be in the best. The FBI is the finest law enforcement agency on earth. And when I joined, it was all Vietnam vets and, and, uh, and it was an amazing, apolitical. I had a partner. For about seven years, Fred Snellings, African-American Marine uh, from Georgia, state trooper, former state trooper. I had many friends, but to this day, and Fred and I did stuff after work with the families. I spent probably 10 hours, 15 hours a day with Fred for eight or nine years. I don't know if he was a Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative. We were FBI agents. And it never dawned on us to, to try to fix a case to, uh, you know, jam something. Yeah. yeah. It, it was, was just strictly about the law. We, we gathered facts and we didn't yeah. even give recommendations for prosecution. We would gather the facts and do an investigation, write it up and give it to the U.S. Attorney's Office. They would make a decision, but nowhere did we say we think this idiot should be given 10 years. We just, just the facts. And and, and agents were hard. They were good. They, they, a lot of them were, were former military, but even the ones that weren't, they, they recruited so well in the Bureau. Uh, I, I'm so proud of my time in the FBI and the Marine Corps, uh, two of the finest institutions ever. Now you work deep under, you also, you work deep undercover for eight years, Buffalo and Buffalo, Memphis, Cleveland, Vegas, and London. What years were you undercover? Well, I had a two-year stint, a two-year stint, and a four-year stint. And the, the four-year stint um, was in the 90s, believe it or not. I had some in the, in the 80s and 70s. But the mob was, was running wild in the 90s, the early 90s. And uh, I spent four years undercover with the Italian mafia. And it, what happened is after about two years undercover, See, like other agencies like DEA, um, they do short-term case. They do some long-term, but they don't have the money and, and the manpower to do these really in-depth RICO cases. So after two years, I'm with these wise guys and nobody got arrested. So I was in and I spent two more years. Uh, we eventually arrested 104 people all over the world. Uh, so know. we're talking that you were involved deep undercover with the mob from like like casino time frame all the way to Gotti. Yeah, I was in uh, Vegas for a year and a half with uh, uh, the mafia. In Vegas was was brutal, but I I was undercover with a made guy, and uh, I wasn't made. But being seen with him, Vegas opened up. I walk in a casino and they say, "Hey, Miss Calabria, here's a cigar. Here's come. What can we get you? You know." And uh, it was amazing. I, I didn't want to. You know, it was it was a great treatment. I didn't want to come come out from undercover. <laughs> Is there that thing where you're undercover and there is that kind of, do I want to 
I mean, is is there that line with some folks and, and some people undercover? You know, do, my, my generation, no. my, my test was, are you a bad person? I, I could have written up, I could have arrested 500 because when you're portraying a bad guy and you have backstopping, I was in uh, casinos and I was also in gentlemen's clubs and uh, people would come to you all the time and try to, you know, do illegal stuff. Like I remember one guy on the car dealership who's a good guy. I mean, he had problems, but he said, Hey, you know, I see, you know, so-and-so can you want to launder some money through my car dealership? And I remember I said, Mikey, you, you just had a kid. Why, why do you, you know, I would chase them. I wouldn't write it up. I would, I mean, you could, uh, if you wanted, you could have, uh, I could have arrested hundreds of people, but I, I what I did is I, in answer to your question, I, I, who was bad? Who, who, when they got up in the morning, was a criminal, not, you know I mean? Who, that was their 24 hours, how they were going to get over and violence. If they were into violence, I would. Whether they had a badge or not, or they had a badge or not. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, John Legato, uh, I just got to say your, your name sounds like an undercover name already. Like, I feel like you don't, you didn't even have to have a, a pseudo name. You were kind of already, you know, you got that name, man. It's like, it, it, it works, it works for that. Um, eight years is a long time. How were you able to stay undercover for that long? And again, you said you did two, two and a four, but how were you able to do eight years and not crack, which under what was probably a lot of pressure? I mean, like, like way, if you're, if you're that deep undercover, there must've been stuff that you witnessed that would have made some other folks say, okay, I want out. Well, that's an interesting, I get that asked and it becomes no. You got to understand. I grew up among Italians in South Philly. I, I grew up with these guys that became wise guys, so I knew the culture. It didn't. I didn't have to learn it, and I felt comfortable. After a while, you cannot withstand whether it's combat or undercover. You can't can't maintain a sort of tenseness or uh, fear for long because they'll smell it. And after a while, I didn't. I, it was more natural for me to get up and go have coffee with wise guys than it would have been to go in the FBI office. And and sometimes the FBI officer is more dangerous than being with the wise guys. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Don't shake your I, head. I work in DC. I can understand that. I can yeah. understand that this whole city. Um, I'm, I'm going to ask you the same question I, I had about way. Was there a time when you were undercover that you ever thought I'm not getting out of this alive? Oh yeah, I got my apartment was bagged. I got uh, uh, they'll test you. Uh, they ransacked it looking for wires or something. And, oh, wow. and here's the other thing: you don't have uh, with the mafia. You don't have your. You obviously don't have your badge, but you don't have a gun. Uh, the mafia doesn't like you to carry weapons. Only certain people, or unless they're at war with another family, but but mostly so. You, you are living with guys like, say, for example, in the Marine Corps, you, somebody might not like you and you, you know, they're going to fight you. They're going to hit you. They're going to, you're going to be in those type of interpersonal relations that, that blow up. And, uh, you know, so they would have, uh, when you first get there, they would test you. They have a big guy come up and, and try to screw with you, you know, and, and, uh, you know, cops would, brace us against the wall and smack us around, you know, and, you know, you, you didn't have a badger gun and you couldn't call time out like they do in the movie. So there were times, yeah, uh, guns and, you know, I mean, 
thumping, you know, people, you know, uh, and being tested by, by other wise guys, you know, mm-hmm. mm. and I'm small, yeah. I'm a small guy. I, you know, yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm sure there's some things that you witnessed. They were like, okay, that's, that could be me or something. Uh, I don't, you know, Hey, yeah. I, I don't, I don't say nothing. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Um, while you were in all this, did you keep in contact with anybody from way or in your, from your no, old life or no, no. no, you have a contact agent uh, with the FBI. And, um, this was before, uh, automatic checking. They get the, your paycheck to your wife and, and you meet them occasionally and you give them reports or you, you give them the status of the case. And that's your lifeline back to the FBI. It's called a contact agent. Interesting. So interesting. Um, Tent and Wolf. Uh, it's a 2006 independent movie with some big, na- with some big names attached to it. Uh, James Marsden from X-Men uh, and Westworld, uh, Giovanni Ribisi, Brad Renfo, Dennis Hopper, Brian Dennehy, Val Kilmer. I never heard this movie until uh, I, I did some research though before this interview. Um, and you were in it as well. Yeah. I, I, I apparently this up. was, what's that? I get blown up, but go ahead. Oh, gotcha. The, the, the director, the director was an Academy Award winning director, Bobby, yeah. Mar- Bobby Maresca. And he said to me, John, this is the first time in a movie I've been in or directed or that a guy gets blown up with a grenade that was actually blown up with a grenade. <laughs> he thought that was funny. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, the movie's loosely based on your your time undercover with, with the premise that a former South Philly kid comes home after war and tangles with the mob boss who who was instrumental in, in leaving for him leaving for the service in the first place. Um, that was the you know, that second part, the mob boss part. Is there any truth to that or is it more fiction? There, there's truth throughout that movie. Like, for example, the, the movie is also based on cousins. Um and I did have a cousin that was arrested by the FBI, whose cousin, his cousin from, you know, his, his maternal side ends up being the, the underboss of the Philadelphia mob. So I was, you know, that's what the movie was loosely based on. And uh, there's so many stuff, so much stuff that didn't get in that movie. <laughs> that, yeah. But, you know, it was, a, it was a wonderful time. I had to go out drinking with Tommy Lee uh, two nights you know, not Tommy Lee Jones, but Tommy Lee, the musician. The drummer? The, the drummer. drummer? He yeah. was in the film? He was in He Played a Wise Guy. Oh, and, far, far out. And what a nice guy. But after the first night, you know, drinking with him, I came to the set the next day. I'm like, he said, you're going to go out tonight? I said, get the heck out of here. So w- was there ever a real life Donnie Brasco situation in your career? Well, I mean, when you Joe was under six years straight, he he was the closest ever to becoming me. They were going to make him. Um, I was an earner. They liked me because uh, I, I earned money for them. I bought drugs from them. I bought guns, but I also had stolen goods. Uh, I had watches, in other words. So they, I got away with stuff because they made money off me. Joe was more down, uh, you know, in and a different part of that. I mean, I hung out with him every day, but he, he you know, he was the greatest undercover agent ever. I mean, we, we all think to go undercover, you, you got to think you're good. But I was undercover with him. I'll never forget this. I'm driving in the, 
in the front seat, and he's in the back with some made guys. And I'm just listening to Joe, and he'd say something. Boy, is that good. I wish I would have thought of that. And he, was, he, he was just a Michael Jordan, you know, and I was handing the ball off to him. And, um, Very good. Now, did you guys know you were undercover together? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Very good. Very good. Wow. Incredible. Um, so you were, you were then in FBI special operation group, uh, as a pilot, uh, Russia, Estonia, Budapest, seems like you were, you stayed in the old Soviet bloc. Um, what were the nature of those missions? Well, I didn't fly over there, but I mean, I went, but, uh, diplomatic training under the, the guys and, uh, it was amazing. We, I, I did shake hands with Putin, um, but I was with a lot of, uh, field grade officers. And uh, I met we met with a lot of former KGB and GRU, which they weren't former really. They but um, it, are it, you it, ever are you ever former? Um. Well, hey, <laughs> it, 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 it was fascinating um, meeting with these guys. Of course, they had our luggage bag. They had microphones in our rooms, and so I would go into Joe's room and I'd say, Joe. I said, you got the plutonium? He said, no, you got the plutonium. I got the anthrax, you know. <laughs> Messing with the microphone. It's yeah, hilarious. Yeah. It's hilarious. Um, you've, you've since retired. You retired in 2003. It, it's funny. I knew, um, again, I, I, didn't, I didn't know that part of your post-career was, in addition to being a professor, being an author. Yeah, I, I love, love the word. I love writing and uh, I wrote mostly nonfiction. I've wrote two um, nonfiction books. I write, I like writing fiction, um, but my fiction is about 75% nonfiction, but I, I um, enjoy writing. I enjoy when I'm writing and I'm writing a book now. Uh, it's like when you're reading a good book, I can't wait to get to it. And, uh, and when we we're finished here, I'll go back to writing. I just enjoy it. Uh, enjoy the writing part more than any other part of the uh, the book process, the, you know, promoting it, the editing, the, the interview parts, I'd rather write. I, you know, I've, I've, I haven't read as much as, as much as I should read. You know, you got the comments, reading list and you have all these reading lists and I never, I was never, I probably haven't been as much of an avid reader as I was back when I was in middle school. Uh, and I was a big reader. I mean, I read books like that, you know, but, uh, it's it. I do appreciate the medium because again, I I I'm a gamer. I watch movies. There's other 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 mediums, but I think it. What it, what I think people need to appreciate is the fact that a lot of those mediums come from writing, come from the a written word of just great stories. So we have a lot of writers in our archives. Um, is there? And I and I and I ask them a lot. I ask a lot of them this question. If if a veteran wants to start writing and wants to get into the writing world and into publishing, you know, you got self-publishing, you got other ways to do it nowadays. What's one thing that they should know they want to get into that world? Well, you got to write. Um, and I say this because I meet so many people and say, I was going to write a book or I started to write a book and you got to write and you got to write for the love of writing. Because if you think you're going to get published, and that's the reason you're writing. It, writing is a catharsis. I mean, it, it you create, uh, and you got to love writing. I mean, you got to love writing because you know it, it's a solitary, you know, occupation. Um, but write, write every day. You, you, 
I hear I can't all have time every day. Yeah, you got time. Even if you write uh, 20 minutes, write. And uh, write in your voice. I see too many writers try to put too many adjectives in a sentence. Like uh, if you were going to say, you know, hey, drop the gun. You don't have to put. He said eloquently, hey, in a British accent, drop the, you know, just put, hey, drop the gun. I, 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 we use too many words. It depends on what you're writing now. If you're writing dialogue, if you're writing, if you're writing dialogue, you write like people talk and, mm. and write from the heart. Write what you know, too, because unless you're writing textbooks, uh, if you try to write from somebody else's expertise, as you know, as a reader, people read that and say, that's BS. Or that we don't talk like that, or that could never happen. You know, no. like a classic Do example that. is uh, guys that write military and they'll use latrine for head. You know, and doesn't that drive you crazy? Or fatigue? Yes. yes. Yeah, there you go. So same in films too, when it's just the wrong uniform or the wrong rank, or absolutely it drives yeah. every military. I think it drives every veteran crazy. That type of stuff yeah. in writing and film and any in any medium, absolutely. Um, which one do you prefer more? Uh, you know, Dale Dye, a former guest, he, he's written fiction and nonfiction. Uh, which do you prefer writing, fiction or nonfiction? Uh, definitely fiction because um, you don't have to work as hard researching. And let me give you an example. I wrote the book, Johnny, right? You know that. I'm going to tell you something that you'll be shaking your head. I wrote the book, The Gunny, which is nonfiction. It's about guys. It's about way. If I put anything in that book that wasn't accurate, those guys would kill me on social media. They'd call me. And they'd so you have to be so uh, exact and uh, which is hard. You know, it, it takes more time to write. Uh, sure. Nonfiction. But, you know, you know yourself. You read something and say, that's BS. That's not right. Or Got to be accurate. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. I know that in my field for, for sure. Yeah. Interesting. Um, John, what's, what's one thing that you learned during your time in the military that you apply to what you do today in life? That if you, if you keep at something, uh, there are many ways. And there's a saying in the Marine Corps, adapt, improvise, and overcome. And I use that in FBI cases. Uh, a lot of people in law, law enforcement are linear thinkers. They just move straight. I found that uh, there's so many ways to get to, to the finish line in, in anything. And, and again, with the Gunnies, 13-year um, odyssey with the medal, uh, I'd get an obstacle. And, I, and, and at the time, I got the obstacle. It looked unattainable. It looked like to be, I can't overcome this obstacle. And I would give up. And then I'd get mad and say, no, I can never. And I would think, you know, well, do something. You know what I mean? If you do something and you're moving and you're talking to people and you're trying to overcome it and you appeal decisions, that's the other, you know, uh, I'm not taking that. You can accomplish almost anything you want. Very good. Very good. Um, John, is there, is there a veteran nonprofit or a veteran in your community or in the community, in the veteran community, whom you've worked with or, or that you'd like to mention? Yeah, you mean organizations? Yeah, or, or yeah. yeah, or a veteran, or you know, either one, either a nonprofit oh, yeah, or yeah. a veteran in the community, either one. 
I'm up at the base all the time. I, I worked a lot of years with Hope for the Warriors. I did uh, charity events for them. And another great, great organization is the Semper Fi Fund. Um, I didn't know much about that, but uh, they're more directly involved. Like, for example, uh, if the hurricane here, uh, if a veteran lost the roof, they give money for a roof. You know, it wasn't like wow. counseling or anything. I was like, here, you need a roof. Here's the money. Shoot, Sean, I think we've co- covered a lot of ground. Um, is there anything that I've missed or haven't asked that you think is important to show? No, just so, you know, uh, you married 50 years and you ask questions about how it's tough. Well, my wife made it easier than it, than it should have been. And, uh, It'll be 51 years, another month or so, but yeah. Congratulations. Well, that's the key too. I mean, you could imagine we have a lot of undercovers and a lot of Marines deployed that are having trouble back home and it affects their performance. But if you're good to go at home, that that emboldens you. That really does. It it makes you bulletproof to a degree. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. I got to ride or die myself, you know? Yeah, Yeah, you're lucky then because a lot of people don't. Yeah. Got to definitely uh, recognize the wives. Um, to anybody that's listening to this, uh, do you have any parting words, parting shots, parting advice that uh, that maybe I haven't brought up yet that you think you'd like to share with any anybody that's out there listening? Yeah, you know, just during this COVID thing, let me, let me give you some advice. Get out of the house. I mean, do something. Um, do something that you want to do. I don't care how weird it might seem. If you want to get into spiritualism, you want to go to seances, you want to uh, volunteer time, you want to do, do it. Don't be afraid of what people think or say. Uh, Do what you always wanted to do. We served our country like those before us. It was a dangerous era. All of Vietnam was dangerous. The carnage of war left an indelible mark on me. We came back and built lives. As time went on, we faced new challenges and found support to handle them. I went to the VA, talked to my doctor. I started doing groups. I started doing one-on-one counseling. At maketheconnection.net, you can hear our stories and find tools and services available to you. I want to thank John for spending time with us here on Born the Battle and for his patience in getting his episode out. You can find more information about John at johnlegato.com. This week's Born the Battle Veteran of the Week is from our VA Veteran of the Day program. Every day, our digital media team honors a veteran on all of our social media platforms and with a blog on blogs.va.gov. You can nominate the veteran in your life by sending in a short write-up and about five photos. And don't take a screenshot of the photos or take a photo of the photo. Actually Actually send in the actual JPEG or PNG as they make a graphic from what you send. But again, send an email with a short write-up and about five good photos to newmedia at va.gov. This one I chose specifically because I saw this airman's mustache. If you get a chance, go on blogs.va.gov or go to one of our social media sites and check out this man's stash. I'm telling you right now, legendary. After graduating college, Glenn Allen Russell joined the Air Force in Pleasant Hill, Missouri, and he began his service in San Antonio, Texas. Upon completing pilot training, say that three times fast, 
Russell became a backseat pilot in F-4 Phantoms. In 1968, Russell became a forward air controller in a Cessna 01 Bird Dog in Southeast Asia. Prior to departing, he received his training for the Bird Dog at Hurlburt Field in Florida. While serving in Southeast Asia, Russell was part of the 21st Tactical Automated Security System Squadron based out of Naha Trang, Vietnam, and I hope I said that right. He also flew as a forward air controller with the 173rd Airborne Brigade from Landing Zone English at Bong Song, Vietnam. And again, I hope I said that right. Russell completed another tour flying B-52 missions in 1972 and 73. He also flew six missions over Hanoi during Operation Linebacker 2 in late of December 1972. When not in the air, Russell enjoyed spending time with the unit's radio operators and other pilots. Russell received a Distinguished Flying Cross and an Air Medal with 16 Oak Leaf Clusters during his service. In June of 1977, Russell honorably discharged from the Air Force at Fairchild Air Force Base in Spokane, Washington. And as a civilian, he worked in the airline industry for 25 years before retiring at the age of 60 due to the FAA's requirements. He then worked part-time gathering data in stores for marketing research. Russell also flew part-time for a contract Air Force service spotting forest fires. He is a member of two veterans organizations, the Red River Valley Fighter Pilots Association, known as the River Rats, and ArcLight, the Young Tiger Association. Air Force veteran Glenn Allen Russell, thank you for your service, and thank you for showing us all that sweet, sweet stash. That's it for this week's episode. If you yourself would like to nominate a future Born the Battle Veteran of the Week, so we can all learn their story, you can. Just send an email to podcast at va.gov, include a short write-up, and let us know why you'd like to see him or her as the Born the Battle Veteran of the Week. And if you like this podcast episode, hit the subscribe button. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcast, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, pretty much any podcatching app known to phone, computer, tablet, or man. For more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, check out our website, blogs.va.gov. And follow the VA on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, RallyPoint, LinkedIn, DEPT Vet Affairs, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. No matter the social media, you can always find us with that blue check mark. And as always, I'm reminded by people smarter than me to remind you that the Department of Veterans Affairs does not endorse or officially sanction any entities that may be discussed in this podcast, nor any media products or services they may provide. I say that because the song you're hearing now is called Machine Gunner, which is courtesy of the nonprofit Operation Song, and was written by Marine veteran Mark Milkilhenny, Nashville songwriter Jason Seaver, and Michael Duncan. Have a great day. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you right here next week. Take care. We gotta get them one way or the other. Machine Gunner. Firefight bullets fly day night brain. Simplified till we die another campaign. Is a rock where the drug lords cut up millions. My pen is a 7.62 round that'll cut them down in an instant. Point, click, pull the trigger to the tune of falling brass. Pull benefits in a purple heart and a Russian made bullet in my back. Raining down lead, punching that clock. Get them, boys, I'm laying down. Let's fly day and night rain Simplify, do or die, another campaign Here we go
go lock and load oh, 331 lug a thousand rounds and I ain't bringing back one in combat uh, humor is a main thing in combat or grunts and and this or is just, a, or just marine culture in general in general yeah during the third or fourth day of the battle at way we're we're in his house and we're shooting out the windows and this guy next to me huff screams ah <laughs> he says legato they shot my thumb off so i mean no no this gets funny so he holds he holds up his hand and his thumb's gone so he says find my thumb and I said, we're going to find your thumb. We're busy here. I'll find it later. So so now he rolls on his back. And I'm thinking, I don't know anything about medical stuff, but I, I don't want him to go into shock. And he wasn't bleeding much. But so I roll on top of him and I, I grab his thumb and I'm putting pressure. And he's got these big wide eyes, I guess, which is normal if you lost a digit, you know, you <laughs> He might be sure. So I said, so I said, well, I'll try to make him laugh because that'll, you know, he won't go into shock. So I, I look at him and we're looking and I said, hey, Huff, uh, when you get back to the world, you're not going to be able to hitchhike. So Huff looks at me like this crazy, like, and I'm thinking, what am I going to say? I said, hey, Huff, when you get back to the world, no one's ever going to be able to accuse you of having your thumb up your ass. So, so now, so now he's got this little smile, and so I said, "Hey, Umbelina, I'm going to get you downstairs to the corpsman. and I got him downstairs. So I always wondered what happened to him, and, and uh, you know, like his grandkids say, hey, "Grandpa, what happened to your thumb?" You know, and say, "It's a crazy Italian, you know, jumped on Grandpa, told a joke, and took my thumb." <laughs> <laughs> That's outstanding. So you've never seen him since? No. And there are quite a few, either they don't want to be seen, you know, they, they drop out. We try to get them back in and, and some of them just died and fell off the face of the earth. I mean, uh, you know, there's a lot of alcoholism, um, yeah. you know, mm. and a well, lot of death wish. Hopefully, hopefully he hears that and responds. That's, uh, that, that, that would be great. Hey, Hop, give me a call. 